This audio program is a ministry of Clear Note Fellowship. For more information, go to clearnotefellowship.org. It's now my privilege to welcome up Dr. Adam Spady. Adam is an elder at Clear Note Church, and he's been a hospitalist for seven years now, and he's about to explain what that means. Thank you. I always thought Jake and Joseph were pretty cool. I'm, on the other hand, have never been cool. Um, For as long as I can remember, my kids come home and uh, make fun of the dorky kids that they know, and I I say to them, you realize that that kid is just like Daddy was when he was (laughs) that age. And they, really? Um, I was so excited about actually getting to wear this thing last night that I, I got on, I did Google Images, and looked to see if Eric Clapton ever wore one of these. (laughs) Unfortunately, I found out that he always stands behind a a fixed mic and strums his guitar, so I don't even get to be cool having the the earpiece on today. So I'm just going to give up, and I'm going to wear my name tag right here. But thank you you for the warm welcome. Thank you for giving me your attention today. Um, Before we get started, I'm going to pray one more time, okay? Please bow your heads with me. Father, we do thank you for bringing all of us together as brothers. I pray now, Lord, that you would make this time fruitful. I pray that you would cause me to decrease, that you might increase. Please send your spirit to work through my mouth to build these men up in their work. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, as, uh, let's see what time we got. Okay, the next talk is at 7, so I promise to have you out of here by 645. Um, but it is, seriously, it is going to be kind of like drinking from a fire hose. I debated whether or not to do slides, but I think you're probably going to need them because there's a lot to cover today. So just, just, uh, hang on to your seat. We're going to cover, we're going to go over a lot of material. As Jake said, um, I have been a hospitalist, just a little bit about me. I went to IU Medical School. I'm a born and raised Hoosier, grew up in Evansville, Indiana, graduated from medical school in 2004 did my residency at St. Vincent Hospital in Indianapolis, which is really, I think, just a top-notch uh, internal medicine residency program in terms of giving people the freedom to learn good medicine and also um, learn to practice ethical medicine. The Catholics, I hate to tell you if you didn't already know this, are still way ahead of the evangelicals when it comes to medical ethics. It won't last, they're, they're eroding too. But for the time it was very good. I finished up residency in 2007 and was board certified in internal medicine. And who can tell me what internal medicine is? Does anybody here know? It's a, it's a very nebulous name. It's basically primary care just for adults. So people ask me, do you do family practice? And the answer is kind of like, well, Sort of. I don't see kids. I don't deliver babies. But it is more or less family practice for adults. After I finished up training for the first seven years, I worked at Premier Healthcare. I'm still there, but I worked as a hospitalist. Now, a hospitalist position is a particular subset of internal medicine where all you do is take care of hospital patients. So the old, this came about about 20 years ago in the United States, and it's It's pretty much universal across the country. Now, in the old days, your family doctor, if you got sick and went to the hospital, he would come see you either in the morning or on his lunch break or in the evening or maybe some combination of the above. But he had an office 
that he had to work in. And it, they found that it was very hard to be two places at once. And so men just started specializing in hospital medicine. And there are good things about the system, there are bad things about the system. Um, but what it meant for me was that I ended up taking care of a lot of people who died. They didn't die because I took care of them. Um, <laughs> but it is part of the, the nature of the work. Um, everything from little old ladies with devastating strokes to 19-year-old uh, overdoses, pretty much anybody that walked in the door, I would be involved in their care. And uh, that includes general inpatient problems that ended well, you know, treatment of pneumonia and things like that, as well as the ICU. Not all hospitalists do critical care work, but that was kind of the, um, the high point of my training at St. Vincent, and, uh, and I did it here in Bloomington, too, and really loved it. That's, I do enjoy critical care quite a bit. So I was exposed to death and dying a lot through my work as a hospitalist. Somewhere in there, I think it was about five years ago, I also started doing, on the side, nursing homework. As a hospitalist, I'd work a really long week and then I'd be off a week. And during my off week, I would take care of nursing home patients. And as you can imagine, dying comes up quite a bit when you're taking care of nursing home patients as well. And then about six months ago, I took over a primary care office for an elderly physician in town who got sick and needed help. And that's what I've been doing primarily for the last six months is getting used to office practice. But I still go to the hospital and I still do my nursing home work. And so I'm at least at this point, kind of one of these uh, members of a dying breed in primary care who goes to all the different locations. And I'm hoping the Lord will make it possible for me to continue that because I really do enjoy practicing in each of those settings. So that's in a nutshell what I know, my exposure to death and dying. That's how I ended up as a doctor getting up and invited to speak at a pastor's conference. And I want to try to lay out for you a little bit what I see as the connection between what you do and what I do. Because what I do is not just medicine. The idea is that I think a lot of people have is that you're good in science, so you go into medicine. And once upon a time, I was good in science, but that really hasn't been the focus of what I do for many years. Um, yesterday was actually kind of a nice treat. I had a young girl in my office and I had a slow day and she had some really weird, unusual symptoms and I was able to just sit and research stuff on the computer and look up articles and it was just like the old days, you know, when I got to be a nerd. But for the most part, now what I do is manage people. Now what I do is I counsel, I teach, I admonish, I deal with a lot of emotional stress. Um, I would, I've never sat down and done the statistics, but if I see 16 people in a day, I would say probably at least 10 to 12 of them are on medication for depression and anxiety. Um, and so our jobs, I think, are very similar. And that's actually one of the things I like most about my job, is that there is a pastoral element to it. I could, you know, just do academic medicine and forego all that, but that's, you know, each doctor kind of carves out his own niche, <clears throat> and this is the way I like to practice medicine. And so, in keeping with that, um, I also get to do similar work, as Jake said, as an elder of this church, and that has equipped me 
more than I could ever describe for the kinds of situations that I deal with in the office, in the hospital, in the nursing home, in working with people. And so it's a privilege for me to be here among pastors. I admire the work you do, and to the extent that God lets me participate in the work as well, I feel very excited and very blessed. I also wanted to show you this picture because, not just because my kids are beautiful, they are, um, not just because I take great delight in them, I do, um, but also because I really feel like they're as much a part of my credentials as my medical training. Nothing has prepared me for dealing with people, for leading people, for teaching people, for disciplining people like having children. Um, it's, it's the best training I have had. And so for you young guys in particular out there, my encouragement to you would be have lots of children and just love them. Because there will be so many situations that come up in the course of being a father that translate into your fatherhood in the church. I can remember one time in the, the oldest one, the real pretty one there. I had her when I was in my first year of med school, second year of med school. And I remember one time uh, I was in the emergency room as a medical student. One of the other medical students said, uh, I don't understand how you do it, you know. I mean, this is so hard. We've got so much studying to do. How do you have children at home? How can you be a father and do this at the same time? And I said, when I get done at the end of the day, or when you get done at the end of the day, you go home to a case of beer. When I get done at the end of the day, I go home to a beautiful wife, a loving home, and a beautiful baby girl. I said, I don't, I don't know how you can be fruitful. You know, I, I, I would ask the question the opposite <clears throat> way around. Now, I will tell you, with the addition of this one, I have thought about incorporating the case of beer into my evenings, too. <laughs> but it hasn't come to that. <clears throat> um, we got a lot to do today. Go ahead to the next slide. As I try to help you guys think about how to be fathers to your congregations in the area of death and dying, we've got three objectives. First, we, I want to define the terms, and that's unfortunately going to take a lot more time than I would like, but there are a lot of terms that you have to get straight in your head. Next, we're going to review some basic scriptural principles that you all know but need reminded of. And then third, we're going to think through a few particular decisions to kind of see how you go through this decision-making process. And in the end, my goal is for you to leave better equipped to shepherd the suffering and those who care for the suffering. And I've got to give you a little aside here, a little plug for being faithful not only to comfort the suffering, to exhort the suffering and their families, but also the medical professionals in your church. Because I'm here today not because some Christian doctor took me under his wing and mentored me. I'm here today because my pastors took me under their wings and mentored me and taught me and pushed me and made me think about what it was going to mean to be faithful. Who here has a doctor in their church? Anybody? A lot of them. Well, <laughs> put your hand down, Stephen. Even if you don't have a doctor in your church, 
I bet you've got nurses. I bet you've got physical therapists. I bet you've got nurses' aides. I bet you've got pharmacists. Um, and so if you don't train them to think biblically, nobody will. Guaranteed. I was just repenting to Ron at lunchtime of how I feel like I failed with the medical students I've had contact with over the last few years since I've been practicing. I've had medical students. I've talked to some of them about the Lord. But the demands of the workday are so intense that it's very hard to carve out time to talk to them about what it means to be a faithful Christian in medicine. And so you pastors have to do it. There are medical professionals who are going to be on the front lines, and they need you to teach them what it means to be a Christian. Okay, next slide. So I'm putting this slide up here not because we're going to go through every one of these terms in detail, but I want to give you just the flavor for the kinds of terms that come up that you'll, have to, that you'll encounter in these situations. So you've got DNR, which stands for do not resuscitate, hospice, palliative care, terminal sedation, life support, artificial nutrition, living will, advanced directives, treatment versus care, ventilators, resuscitation, futility, pulsed and post, which we will go into. Many of you probably don't know what that is. Defibrillation, brain death, persistent vegetative state, which I've used the term, but I think it's basically a wicked term and you shouldn't use it, and I'll explain why. And death. Death is actually a term we need to try to define. Um, So we're going to take these, not in that order, but we're going to focus in on some of these terms. What is inherent in the concept of a definition, though, is another concept, which is distinctions. And so I want you to think about distinctions as we go through these terms, okay? Next slide. So let's start with some biblical terms. I think any conference on life and death, it's useful to think about, okay, what actually is life? What does the Bible tell us life is? What is death? What does the Bible tell us death is? David alluded to this last night um, when he talked about the breath in the blood. And I wanted to go ahead and read these verses to you. Genesis 2, 7 says, then, there's a typo there, then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. So you have God breathing and breath being inseparable from the concept of the man becoming a living being. Genesis 9, 4, only you shall not eat flesh with its life, its blood. And then Leviticus 17, 11, this concept is repeated, I think, more times than this, but I just gave you both verses so you would know that it's a common theme in Scripture. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. And so we live in a kind of a perverse generation. We live in a perverse generation. It's not kind of, but there's a particular kind of perversity in our generation in that we actually have to stop because of the technology that's available to us and argue over when does life begin, when does death occur? Because you have people all the time trying to push the definition in one way or another that's advantageous for the wicked deeds they want to accomplish. And you're most familiar with this, of course, in the area of abortion. In 1960, 
2002, I want to say, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology redefined conception as the time of implantation rather than fertilization because it was advantageous to their pro-abortion, pro-murder agenda. Similarly, we, because of technology, because of current practices in, in medicine, we have to do a similar thing with death. We have to say, okay, when is the person dead? And this comes up, as we'll see later, in questions of withdrawing support, withdrawing care, organ donation, et cetera, et cetera. What I found over the years is that the Bible doesn't have a verse that says the moment of death is fill in the blank. The best we can do is go with the basic principles of Scripture and then do our best to apply them. And so with death, somebody read about um, Sapphira earlier breathing her last Similarly, you see the moment that Jesus dies in Luke 23, 46, and Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last, and I think the next verse reads, I'm not going to look it up right now, and he died. Clearly, the implication is last breath corresponds with death. And so... Keep that in mind as we talk about this because it'll be pertinent to our discussions about the end of life and the moment of death. Okay, next slide. Um, important distinctions that I want you to keep in mind in non-biblical medical terminology. The first one is basic care. First term is basic care. That is distinct from treatment. Okay, basic care is distinct from treatment. In classical... I don't mean classical in the sense of ancient world. In traditional Christian medical ethics, basic care is non-negotiable, okay? Most Christian ethicists, I think, would say basic care is still non-negotiable, but what they negotiate over is what constitutes basic care. And that's an important argument, um, as we'll see in a little bit. Basic care should always happen with every patient. That is distinct from treatment which gets very complicated in deciding who should get what treatment, which kinds of treatments, when, when to withhold, and so forth. Within the realm of treatment, you have resuscitation and life support, and they're all connected, and these come into the decision-making process as well. These are types of treatment that often are very appropriate to use sometimes may be withheld, but they're not part of basic care. Okay, next slide. So what is basic care? Basic care is hygiene, it's shelter, okay, it's warmth, it's blankets, it's bandages on wounds, it's nutrition and hydration, that's the one that people debate over, but nutrition and hydration are part of the basic care that you have, have you guys seen this lately? Um, there's this bumper sticker I've been seeing around town that says, dogs are family, would you chain your grandma outside? Um, we have a dog that we delight in chaining outside um, <laughs> because she destroys the house otherwise. Um, and this is part of our godless culture that tries to equate man and animal, but they even realize that basic hydration and nutrition and warmth and shelter are necessary for animals. They're 
infinitely more important for human beings. Um, emotional and su- spiritual support are part of basic care. Think the Good Samaritan, okay? If you want to know what basic care is, think about what the Good Samaritan did. He picked the guy up, he carried him to shelter, bandaged and cleansed his wounds, he paid for his room, he paid for his food, and said, whatever other costs you accrue, let me know, put it on my tab, and I'll settle up with you when I get back. That's what basic care is. It's loving your neighbor. Okay. Treatment, on the other hand, is a, a, a much broader category. It includes all medications. Um, so we're talking antibiotics, heart medicines, diabetes medicines, emphysema medicines, chemotherapy, you name it. It includes surgeries. It includes procedures such as stents in the heart and that kind of thing. And it also includes a lot of other helpful treatments like physical therapy, speech therapy, and so forth. Next slide. As I said earlier, treatment also can include resuscitation. And I want you to stop and just, let's take a few minutes to think about resuscitation. Because there's a lot of confusion about resuscitation. I see this when people fill out living wills they equate resuscitation with being kept alive by machines. Okay, resuscitation is a discrete event. It, it's an event in time. You start to die and you're resuscitated. Now let me ask you this. When people are resuscitated, are they brought back from the dead? No, that's right, because as it was said earlier, it's appointed a man wants to die and then the judgment. You have to explain this to people um, because they, they don't understand it. They think it is coming back from the dead. It's not coming back from the dead. It's halting the dying process through resuscitative efforts. So this is going to include things like CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, chest compressions. Have any of you ever done chest compressions on someone? David has, Caleb has. Um, what's it like, Caleb? It's what? It's very messy. Have you ever broken anybody's ribs? If you do it right, you're almost guaranteed to break ribs in the sternum. It's a, it's a brutal procedure, but it does save some lives. Any guess as to what the success rates for resuscitation I hear 15, I hear 5. Out of the hospital, it's less than 10. In the hospital, even with all the bells and whistles, it's at best a quarter, probably closer to 20%. And so this really is kind of a Hail Mary attempt, but it does, in 20% of the cases in the hospital, work. Um, It also includes things like intubation. Intubation is when you put a tube in someone, down their throat, into their lungs, so you can force air in and out. Intubation is not particularly helpful if you don't have a ventilator, because you can only stand there, your forearm will only allow you to do this so many times with the bag to force air in and out. So ventilation with a machine goes along with intubation. Defibrillation is part of resuscitative um, armamentarium that we have at our disposal. The thing, I have an asterisk by defibrillation because I want to um, dispel a myth about defibrillation. A lot of people believe that when the heart stops, this comes from TV, I think, when the heart stops, you can 
put the paddles on, defibrillate somebody, put electrical current through their chest, and get the heart going again. That's actually not at all how it works. If the heart is not beating, you can shock them from now till next week, and it's not going to, to restart their heart. What defibrillation is for is when the heart is in a bad rhythm that's not circulating blood, you can get them out of that rhythm. Um, and so defibrillation, a lot of people would say, if you're talking to them about uh, whether or not they want to have resuscitative efforts, they'll say, oh, yeah, well, you can, you can shop me, but I don't want to be on a breathing machine. Well, actually, probably the much more effective thing in most cases of resuscitation is to get somebody on a breathing machine as opposed to defibrillation. And for the most part, these need to be taken as a package deal. Um, it's, it's very hard to do this a la carte, and a lot of people who are just so opposed to the idea of being hooked up to any kind of machine that they say, well, you can press on my chest, or you can shock me, but I want to be a on a ventilator. Well, I can just about guarantee you in every case, if I have to do one of those, I'm going to have to put you at least for a period of time on a ventilator. And so um, I'm all for resuscitative efforts in cases where they make sense, but they really need to be taken as a package deal. But again, we're not talking here about months of resuscitation. We're talking about an effort to stop a pa patient from dying in a critical situation. That's distinct from ongoing life support. You use life support techniques in the midst of resuscitation, but when people think about this kind of thing, they think life support, they think being kept alive by machines. Okay, and so you can keep someone breathing with assistance on a ventilator. Um, actually, I got a call today asking if I would uh, do house calls on a patient who's been on a ventilator for 20 years, I think. And uh, she lives at home and her parents take care of her. And I think it sounds like a lot of fun. So I said, sure. Um, and I'm going to go meet that person next week. So you, there are appropriate long-term uses of life support. But life support, as people conceive of it, is different. I think I've hammered that point home enough. Um, another thing to understand give you another example about life support. There's somebody here this weekend, hope he doesn't mind me saying this, that I found out, is here in a sense on life support. Not as we speak, but three times a week for four hours each time he goes to dialysis. Dialysis is a form of life support. You have a vital organ that doesn't work anymore and the way his life is sustained and has been for the last four years is through life support. And so keep that kind of scenario in mind when you hear people say, well, I just, I, I don't want to be kept alive by machines. We've got a guy at the pastor's conference because of life support, okay? Where our ethical dilemmas come into play is figuring out where on the spectrum an individual patient is going to fall. Are we going to do resuscitation? What do we do about life support? What kind of treatments are we going to do? And how are we going to define basic care? And these things are a mess. If you've ever been involved in them, um, emotions run high, previously held beliefs end up getting challenged, families fight, doctors fight, nurses fight. They are a mess. And there's no easy way to handle them. And that's something else I want to drive home 
um, is that you have to take each of these cases on a case-by-case -case basis, look at the situation, look at the facts, and then apply the scriptural principles the best you know how. The, the most famous case of this in our church in recent history is uh, our, our um, representative Jew here in the church, Bob Kaplowitz, who has cerebral palsy, and several years ago got pneumonia and had to be on a ventilator. A ventilator is a type of life support. Everybody in the hospital thought I was barbaric for keeping him alive. Why don't you just let the poor man die? Can't you see that he's suffering? Can't you see that this is not going to work? Can't you see that he's tired? And, um, you know, I knew better about Bob. I didn't know for sure he was going to make it, but I knew that his life had value. And I was in the difficult position of standing between all the staff in the hospital and Bob's family. And praise God, there was a happy ending to that situation, but Bob's going to get pneumonia again, and he's at it again recently. And so each time we have to look at the facts, look at how sick he is, look at how his mind may have changed over time, look at what's going on in his home spiritually. We have to consider all these things. And I don't make it out to be complicated so you can look at me and say, ooh, it's a good thing we have doctors like you around. I'm making it out to be complicated to impress upon you the work you have to do. Because more often than not, there's not going to be a Christian doctor around to help you. Um, I'm happy to help when I can, um, but I fail. I make mistakes too, and often I won't be available. Um, and so you guys have to be up on this work. It's like uh, when Tim talked about we have to stay ahead of the culture, and what was it where we were... Oh, cremation. That's very much how the church is on all of these end-of-life issues like hospice, palliative care, and so on and so forth. You've got to lead and not react to the culture, and it's hard to do. So I, put, I found this picture on Google. I like Google images. Um, this is a typical day in the ICU when I'm working there. This is what I mean by intubation. You've got an endotracheal tube going in the throat. This is the ventilator over here forcing air in and out of that tube. You can't see it very well, but this tube right here is, is an oral gastric tube going down to the stomach to st suck out stomach contents. Right here, you've got an IV going into the jugular vein so that you can administer really powerful medicines, probably most likely to elevate the blood pressure. And then here you have all the IV pumps. You've got some IV fluids and a pressure bag to run them in quickly. Um, and this is, this is life support. And we do it all the time, and it works a lot of times. Um, but these are the kinds of, this is how a lot of people die. And I don't think everybody should die like this. I'm in firm solidarity with Max when he said earlier, people need to go home. People need to be at home with their loved ones. There are good ways to die and there are bad ways to die. And for many people, this shouldn't happen. They should be able to spend their last moments awake, conscious, able to ask forgiveness, able to listen to, to and sing along with hymns, able to pray. And if you have one, just even the, the, the ventilator tube in your mouth, 
it's extremely uncomfortable. We had to do it once in residency while we were awake just so we could feel what it was like. And you want to be sedated when you're on a ventilator, trust me. Um, and so people in this, in this situation are always going to be sedated. So all the work of dying that's been referenced this weekend doesn't happen real well in this kind of situation. Um, let me catch up here with my notes. Next slide, please. So we've talked about the, some of the terms, not all of them, but some of the terms and some of the most important distinctions. And we'll get back to those throughout the presentation, but I also want to now move on to the principles. What are the principles? What is the overriding, overarching, driving principle that should inform all of our medical ethics? And there are a lot of verses you could um, cite and a lot of verses that are helpful, but I think ground zero for all of this comes from Genesis, a couple of verses after where we read earlier about the life being in the blood, Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. And we have to, uh, nobody in the world believes that we're made in the image of God, okay? We have to to constantly remind ourselves this. We have to constantly teach the people in our church this. We have to constantly tell the nurses we know that man is made in God's image, and that's why life has value. That's why life is precious. That's why life should be preserved, okay? That's ground zero for all of our medical ethics. Now, there's a warning that I want to give you, too. If you forget about Genesis 9-6, you're not off the hook. Because Proverbs 29 tells you, deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter. Oh, hold them back. If you say, see, we did not know this. Does, not he, does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? And does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? I say this to warn you that there is no excuse for not defending life, but in saying it, I, sh I shudder. I tremble because I know that I have failed to do this. I have not held back those being led to slaughter at times in my life and my career, and the only hope I have is that Jesus is merciful and that he's forgiving and that it appears that he's still pleased to use me. And so don't let your past failures stand in the way of being faithful in this going forward, okay? You have failed. I'm confident of that in all of you. I'm confident of this good thing that all of you have failed. But I'm also confident of his grace working, his ability to work in you and to make you faithful to defend the image of God and man. Next slide. More principles. I don't think you can use the golden rule. The golden rule is a great principle given to us by our Lord. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The reason I say you can't use it is because nobody, what, nobody thinks the right thing of what they would want to have done unto them anymore. Everybody just says, well, I, I wouldn't want that. I wouldn't want to lay there like a vegetable. I wouldn't want all... The, 
those machines hooked up to me. I wouldn't want all that money spent on me. And the things that we want done to ourselves are not godly, so we can't use that as a reasonable gauge for how we should treat others. Okay? Don't use dignity as a principle. Every, all of the medical ethics literature is, is um, filled with talk of dying with dignity. And yes, people should be treated with dignity. There is dignity in human life, but that's not what they mean when they say dignity. You know, it's like talking to a Mormon. You have to be crafty because they lie and they use words that mean different things that, than you mean when you use the words. When people talk about dying with dignity, they mean dying with pride. Okay, they mean dying looking good, dying without pain, dying without suffering, dying without hardship. And we know from our Lord uh, that that's not biblical death. That's not, should not be our highest goal as we approach the end of, end of our lives. Autonomy, similarly, is not a reliable principle to use. That's another popular one in medical ethics. Um, there's so many straw men in these arguments. If you oppose autonomy, you say, well, you just want to return to paternalism in medicine where the doctors all came in and told you what was going to happen and patients never had any choice and patients never had any rights. And Yeah, yeah, that's what I want. You got me. I would just love to go around telling everybody what they need to do because I don't have anything better to do. Um, of course, we believe that we should be kind in our leadership. We, should, we believe in a benevolent exercise of authority. But that doesn't mean that anything the patient wants goes. That doesn't mean that anything the patient wants is righteous. If the patient wants me to give them a lethal dose of morphine, that's not right. Their autonomy gets overruled, okay? And so be careful with arguments from autonomy. Probably the most insidious one is quality of life because we can all relate to it. If you don't believe in quality of life arguments, then I think you're a liar. I don't believe you. Um, I think we're all sympathetic to quality of life arguments. And the reason they don't work is partly because what I already said, which is the image of God is written into every man. In his image we are created, and so life has quality. This is something that you can't, I don't think you can teach enough to the people in your churches. Life has quality. It doesn't matter what state it's in. Human life, man's life, has quality surely by the fact that he's made in the image of God. The other reason it doesn't work is from passage of scripture that I should have found on my own, but it was actually not that long ago that Michael Foster pointed it out to me. And it's from 2 Samuel, and I'm going to read it to you. David has just had, um, I believe it's an Amalekite, come and tell him that Saul's dead. And listen to what happens. Then David said to him, where, from where do you come? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, how did things go? Please tell me. And he said, the people have fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? The young man who told him said, by chance I happened to be on Mount Geboa, 
And behold, Saul was leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. When he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I said, Here I am. And he said, Who are you? And I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. Then he said to me, Please stand beside me and kill me, for agony has seized me, because my life still lingers in me. So I stood behind him, behind, beside him and killed him, because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown which was on his head and the bracelet which was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. And then what does David do? He has his head cut off. Okay. I think if we're honest, we feel a little bit sorry for this guy. He seems to do everything right. He even calls David his Lord, even though he's an Amalekite. It seems like he did the merciful thing. Saul's going to die anyway. He's got a spear through him. They didn't have a cure for that in the ancient world. Okay. He's in agony. He says, I'm in agony. What does it matter if he took his life a little bit sooner, five minutes earlier? You know, Saul was probably going to die pretty quickly anyway. Maybe not. Maybe he might have lasted a couple hours. But what's it matter? He was trying to improve Saul's quality of life, right? Wrong. He was trying to extinguish the life that was left in Saul. And this, I don't know of any scripture other than Genesis 9 that's more informative for us as we think about quality of life arguments and the concept of mercy killings, euthanasia, and pain control at the end of life. Because whether it's done by Jack Kevorkian, loud and on TV, out in front of everybody, or whether it's done quietly in a hospital bed with a little extra morphine, I'm here to tell you, brothers, this happens all the time. And I think most of us really aren't that bothered by it. What's a few more minutes of life? They're unconscious anyway. They don't know we're here. They're brain dead. What's it matter? And it's wicked. And we need scripture to, to transform us. We need to be renewed in the thinking of our minds. Okay? Double effect is another principle that gets used a lot in medical ethics. Be very careful with double effect. I think this traces back to Aquinas. It has its use. What it basically says is that I didn't mean to. Um, what it basically says is if something happens that you didn't intend to happen, but you were, it happened in the course of you trying to do something good, it's okay as long as the good outweighs the bad. Well, you can see that that's just full of subjectivity, full of judgment calls. And sometimes we have to make those judgment calls, but the thing to note is the whole thing hinges upon the balance of the good to be derived from the action and the risks that are inherent in the action. There's a scale, there's a fulcrum, and it's tipping back and forth, and your good has to be at least proportionate to the bad or preferably to far outweigh the bad, okay? Well, what is the bad that we're talking about? In these kinds of decisions, 
what is the bad? Death. How do you get a proportionate good that outweighs killing someone? You don't. And so when people, and this, and the Christian Medical Association is worthless on this point, okay? I'm just going to tell you, I wish they weren't. It would be so nice for me if they were better, but they're not. They say that when it comes to treating pain at the end of life, the principle of double effect reigns. And if you give somebody too much morphine and that hastens their death, as long as you were trying to t- treat their pain, you're off scot-free. And it doesn't work. It doesn't fly. Aquinas, the guy who came up with it, wouldn't have bought it. Okay, it's a misuse of this principle. It's a very dangerous principle to try to use to justify actions in these life and death situations. We've got more principles here. I've given you all of the principles that push you to preserve life. Now let's swing back the other way a little bit. We're not contradicting the things we just said. We're just... I'm giving you more principles to think of how to apply them. Okay, you know from Ecclesiastes and the birds that there's a time to live and a time to die. That's not wrong. Okay, there is a time to die. And the best way I know to understand this from Scripture is to look at the example of the Apostle Paul. We have these wonderful accounts of the Apostle Paul facing death over and over and over and over and he escaped it every time except one. But each time he faced it, he faced it with faith. He faced it with the desire to go on living so he could bear fruit for the church, but he faced it with faith and acceptance. And so if he went into a city and preached and it got him stoned, well... Okay, but there, the good of preaching the gospel did outweigh the risk of getting stoned. If he got shipwrecked, he faced that with faith. If he got beaten, he faced it with faith. And so there is a godly acknowledgement of death as an enemy. Remember, Paul's the one who told us it's the last enemy. He doesn't embrace it. He doesn't love it. He doesn't have this sicko, twisted love affair with death that all the intellectuals of our culture do. Okay? He says it's the enemy. He's the only reason you know it's an enemy. And yet he faces it with faith. Okay? Uh... Last principle, and I don't have a verse for this, but the last principle I want to give you as you think about these decisions is everything that is moral or that is technologically possible is not morally required of you or the people in your congregation or their loved ones. And this is, goes back to what I said earlier about us living in a world that just brings all kinds of complexities and perversities that they didn't have to deal with in the same way in past generations. There's, on the one hand, there's nothing new under the sun. We know that. But the application of these things does get complex today because we have so many options. 
Do we do dialysis? Do we not do dialysis? Do we use a ventilator? Do we not use a ventilator? Do we get more chemo? Do we not get more chemo? And on and on. Just because something is possible doesn't mean, in all cases, you're morally obligated to do it. And so that's when the tough decision making comes in. And that's sort of the essence of figuring out where on that spectrum I showed you earlier we should fall. There are Christians who say that if you can do it and it might work, you have to do it. And uh, sort of a, I'm convinced God has a weird sense of humor, but my wife tends to fall in this category. <laughs> and so I think it's God's kindness to me that when I come home and talk about difficult cases, she says, and I say, well, we didn't do such and such. I don't get the benefit of the doubt. It's like, well, why not? And that's very good. It's very sanctifying because any of you who are my close friends know that I'm prone to becoming callous just like the next guy. And so I need a wife with a very simplistic view of life to push me out of my callousness and to remember that the first principle is that we honor life, is that we honor the image of God. Next slide. All right, so I don't know what just happened, but um, let's take some, let's start thinking about how do we answer these questions? How do we apply these principles? You've got a treatment. It's technologically possible. How do you decide if it's morally obligated, if, if, it's, if you're morally obliged to use it as the doctor or the patient? Well, one question you can ask is, is death imminent or inevitable? This is a very useful concept, a uh, very useful question that I learned years ago from Tim, but have seen multiple times since in the medical ethics literature. If death is imminent, which means, what, coming soon, real close, and if it's inevitable, then the right thing to do is to keep a person comfortable and not to pursue every technological treatment at your disposal, okay? If death is imminent and inevitable, um, it may also be permissible to withdraw certain types of treatment. Next question, is the treatment ordinary or extraordinary? Um, if you go back, I think since... Humana Vitae, and read all the stuff the Catholics write, this is the concept that they develop most thoroughly and helpfully, which is, and this kind of relates to the principle of double effect, is the good that you expect to get out of the treatment commensurate with the burden of the treatment? If so, then we're talking about ordinary treatment. Is the burden of the treatment ridiculous? in comparison to the potential good, if so, then this treatment is extraordinary. We are obligated, because life is precious, because life belongs to God, because our lives are made in the image of God, we are obligated to pursue ordinary treatment, okay? We're not obligated, though it may be permissible, to pursue extraordinary treatment. Okay? 
if the doctors told Lucas that, hey, listen, this uh, respiratory infection is worse than we thought, I don't know that we're going to be able to get Mary Louise off the ventilator. You better believe that little girl's getting intubated. And she's going on the ventilator. You've got to try. Okay, it's a burdensome treatment. But in that case, it's an an extraordinary treatment, not in her case, but I'm, spe I'm taking her situation and making a different case out of it, a hypothetical situation. Even though that would be an extraordinary treatment in that case, you try it. You do what you can to preserve this precious life. Okay, Lucas is one of our pastors for you guys who are out of town who don't know, and his daughter is healed and home and healthy and beautiful. But there are times that you absolutely should pursue extraordinary treatments. You're not morally obligated to do it in the same way that you are with ordinary treatments. Now, what's the question you should all be asking yourselves? How do you know? It's hard. It's hard. And you, it, here again, you have to look at the facts. You have to look at the condition of the the patient, you have to look at the technology available, you have to look at the expertise of that medical center. It's very hard. But it's a helpful principle nonetheless. Are there vital organs which no longer function? This is a principle that I've used over the years to decide whether or not it may or may not be permissible to withdraw treatment. And I'll be honest with you, I haven't, I don't have a verse that I can go to that creates a rock-solid proof for this principle, but it seems sound to me, and I think it has served me well, and so I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to do more than suggest it, I'm going to give it to you as a principle, and if you want to argue with me about it later, I'd be happy to. Um, and have you sharpen me, but to say that there are vital organs which no longer work and are not going to recover, now if you've got a vital organ that's stunned, but there's a good chance of recovery, we're, we're in a totally different scenario. I'm talking about a vital organ, so kidneys, liver, um, lung, heart, maybe brain, although that's in a slightly different category. If you have a vital organ that no longer works and is not there's no reasonable hope of it recovering function, then I would argue that in that situation, it may be permissible to withdraw life-sustaining care, life-sustaining treatment, I should say. Doesn't mean you should. It doesn't mean it's the right thing. It means that the patient has, is in a state that is not without medical technological intervention compatible with life. And so then you're left with the decision how long do I pro prolong utilization of this technology to sustain life? These are very hard decisions. But I think we can all understand that certain treatments are extremely burdensome. Um, as I said earlier, people can exist on a ventilator for many years. Um, it's, that, that is fairly burdensome, but in certain patients it can be done. In other patients, it would not work. And so again, you have to take it on a case-by-case -case basis. Even more 
extreme than that would be, uh, let's use the example of a left ventricular assist device, something that helps the heart um, to, to pump. That's not a great long, long-term possibility. Now, the technology may advance to where it is, but right now it's not. It's a burdensome treatment that doesn't have any kind of good long-term prognosis. If the heart doesn't work in that situation, you have to face the decision, when do we stop using this treatment? And this is the only general principle that I've been able to come, with to, come up with to help me through those decisions. And here's where Hopefully, Christian doctors and nurses come in, but you guys definitely do. What's the patient's spiritual condition? You have to ask these questions when you're making decisions about applying treatment or withdrawing treatment. This was, the, I guarantee you, front and center of my mind when I was trying to figure out during Bob's last case of pneumonia whether or not he should be re-intubated. Um, I'm not worried about Bob's spiritual condition, but it's, it has to enter your mind. You have to think about what spiritual work remains for this individual. Has the patient done the work of dying? This, is a, this idea of the work of dying has been mentioned several times this weekend, but I don't think it can be stressed enough. There is vital work that should accompany dying whenever it's possible. Work of confessing of sins, work of reconciliation, asking forgiveness, work of putting affairs in order. You see the Apostle Paul doing this, you know, making last comments, exhortations, recommendations before he knows he's going to die. He's constantly to the end, not thinking of himself, but thinking of the church. It's the polar opposite of what we have in our culture. The only thing we think about in our culture is me, myself, my pride, my comfort, and we're not thinking about putting our affairs in order for the benefit of other people. I'll give you a couple uh, anecdotes. Um, one of the more encouraging conversations I had with patients in the hospital in the last year was a man who had had a very successful business career, very successful academic career, and I don't remember right now even what his malady was, but he was suffering. It was real suffering. And he was, un he was miserable. And uh, his wife out in the hall says to me, you just don't understand. This is, not, this is not him. He's a very proud man. And this just kills him to have to live like this. And, you know, I'm, I'm enough of a Christian that I hear somebody say he's a very proud man and I feel some responsibility to do or say something. And I didn't engage her on it at the time, but what I did was the next day I went into his room and I said, your wife says you're a very proud man. And I said, I want you to know that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is honestly what he said. He said, say it again. And I said, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And we went on and had a very good conversation in which I proclaimed the gospel to him. But you think you're going to get spit on if you say things like that. You think security is going to come take you out of the hospital. You think that the wife is going to sue you. But you guys have to live by faith. 
And that was an, an instance where God gave me faith. And it was, you know, telling this man that the pride of life was a danger to his soul was exactly what he needed and wanted to hear at that time. Um, I, I, that was an instance of repenting of selfishness. I had another patient, I've told Jake about this guy, who um, he was dying of cancer. I diagnosed it, and I got to be the one to tell him he wasn't going to live very long. And he said, uh, well, Doc, all I can say is uh, get, buy me a fifth of whiskey and a carton of cigarettes and drop me off at the nearest whorehouse. And I tried to engage him a little bit. It was timid. I tried. He wasn't biting. He wasn't taking the bait at all. And that's how he died. That's how he went into eternity thinking about the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, the things of this world. I'll give you one more example of a rarity, a real rarity, a lady that uh, we had done everything we could for. These are all in the last year. And she was very, very sweet. And when I, find, I told her, you know, for days I'd been saying, I don't, think, I don't think it's time to throw in the towel yet. We're not done. But she had a real good sense of where things were headed. And finally, the day came and I said, I don't think there's anything else we can do for you. She said, oh, I know, doctor. That's okay. I know you did everything you could. Don't you feel bad for a minute? You tried hard. Don't, don't you worry, doctor. You, you did everything you could. And then I watched as a parade of family members came in. And the consistent testimony as they came out was that her whole intent the only thing that mattered to her during those last couple days she lived in the hospital was to give some word of encouragement or truth to each family member who came in. She didn't talk about herself. She didn't talk about her pain. She didn't talk about her comfort. She expressed Christian faith. And even with me, a guy who had just met her, she was, encouraged, she was worried about my encouragement in, in the state of my heart as I dealt with her death. Where are we at here? Um, and so selflessness is the natural disposition of man toward the dying process, toward decision-making, and we've got to teach people that it has to be the exact opposite. Now, as we do this, one of the biggest questions we're going to hit is advanced directives. Advanced directive, all that is, is a term that means in advance of a critical situation, you give a directive as to how you want that situation to be handled. So back in the 70s, this started with living wills. Living wills are still used, um, not as much as they used to be, but I hate living wills because every, will I, every living will I've ever looked at is confusing to me. I know it's got to be confusing to the patient or they just don't bother to read it. I know good and well that the answers, the boxes they've checked on the living will are entirely dependent on how either the lawyer or um, the doctor or whoever who explained it or did not explain it to them chose their words. And everyone's different, so you gotta sit there and flip through four or five pages to figure out what does it even say. Living wills were a problem. The problem is 
we've gone too far. What we've replaced it with is even worse. And that's what's called a pulsed form. I don't have that up there yet. Um, don't, don't advance yet. We'll get to it in a minute. What's called a pulsed form, physician orders for life-sustaining treatment. And we're going to talk a little bit about pulse before we wrap up today. And I'll tell you why the pulse is an inferior replacement for the living will. What kinds of things are on living wills? What kinds of boxes do you have to check? What kinds of decisions have to be made? Well, one is do you want resuscitation or not? Do you want that discrete event in time, that defined action that is performed in the interest of trying to reverse the process of dying? So are you a do not resuscitate or are you a full code? And I've already told you about the success rates. I think it is very appropriate for certain patients to be do not resuscitate, to have a DNR status. Um, those success rates of 20% in the hospital plummet if you take somebody who has advanced cancer, who is extremely frail from years of dementia and malnutrition. They plummet to basically less than 1%. Um, I don't think DNRs in and of themselves are evil. And so that's a decision that has to be made. Another one that I think is a great decision that if in certain cases and helps you avoid a lot of the technical, um, the problems with technology that we've talked about are do not hospitalize orders. I think it's, a, it's very appropriate. I remember when um, Mr. Taylor was dying of recurrent aspiration pneumonia and the question was, why can't we just keep him at home but give him antibiotics? Um, does all this stuff have to be done in the hospital? Do you have to take someone away from their family, shove them in, you know, a sterile hospital room where you can only have one or two visitors at a time? Or can't you do some of this stuff at home, which is, in many cases, a far superior place to die? Do not hospitalize, do not hospitalize orders make a lot of sense in some situations. I will tell you though that the, the one time I vividly remember getting fired from a case was when I was a brand spanking new hospitalist um, in, my, in my first few months of practice and this lady had lung cancer, she had bad emphysema, she had atrial fibrillation of the heart and I think something else and it was just she was kind of getting in this revolving door pattern of being in the hospital all the time and I tried to talk to her and her husband about do you really want this? I'll give you the treatment. In fact, I was the only one willing to treat her. All her doctors that she trusted didn't want to admit her to the hospital so when she needed to come to the hospital they called me and asked me to do it. That didn't seem to matter to her. But what ended up happening is because I tried to talk to her and her husband about preparing for death and how she wanted to die. <clears throat> they said, get out of here. We don't want you talking like this. We don't want to see you again. We want only our doctors. How dare you talk to us about dying and take away our hope? I'm sure I could have done it better, but that, that you run into that once in a great while in these kind of situations. But these are the kinds of things, these are the kinds of conversations that not just doctors have, you guys will be having too. Do you really want to go back to the hospital for the fourth time this month for this problem, which is not getting better. Organ donation, we don't have time to talk about, um, but I'll be happy to talk to you about it during the break if you want. Feeding tubes are the hardest, and feeding tubes should be the easiest. 
many of you know that men from this room went down to witness to the sanctity of Terry Schiavo's life, to oppose the murder of Terry Schiavo by starvation. What they did was right, noble. It should be happening all the time. Men opposing this wickedness because I can tell you the wickedness is going on all the time. Feeding tubes get removed and people get starved to death. Feeding, providing nutrition and hydration is a part of basic care. It doesn't matter that it happens through a tube. Are you going to fault a baby because they get nutrition through a bottle? Are you going to fault somebody because they're sick in bed and, you know, their wife has to come and feed them with a spoon? Are we Indians, you know, where we eat everything with our fingers and if we can't, our life is meaningless? No. It doesn't matter that it comes through a tube. And, and, and here again, I'm not Catholic. I'm very decidedly not Catholic, but they are very helpful on this issue in that they say, don't talk about artificial nutrition and hydration. Talk about medically assisted nutrition and hydration. And see what huge effect the little word change has? Do you, under, you, guys, you guys have to be attuned to connotations of words. Doesn't medical assistance sound so much better than artificial? Who in here has a hippie wife who hates anything artificial? There's got to be some in here somewhere. And, makes you, and they, make, they make you eat bulgur wheat and all kinds of other stuff that's unfit for human consumption. No one? All right. Liars. <clears throat> we hate anything that's called artificial. And so what appears on all the forms? The term artificial. Medically assisted nutrition is much, a much better way to say it. Feeding tubes, again, should be easy, but these are the ones you have the hardest fights over. And I want to go ahead and advance to the next slide. I want to show you what's involved in putting a feeding tube in. You take a scope, the endoscope. Can you guys see the laser? Okay, the endoscope goes in. This is a little fiber optic deal. Down into the stomach, a bright light shines. And from the outside, you put a needle in and... Between the two of these, you verify that you're in the stomach with the scope. You watch the tube being pushed in through the abdominal wall. Get it in place, verify position, take the scope out, and you're done. It's really not a big deal. There's no scalpel. It's not a surgery. Now, there are some people that you can't do this in. There are some people that it's not right for. But for the most part, this is not a hugely burdensome procedure. But I challenge you to find someone who isn't sort of viscerally opposed. Okay. Uh huh. We do it all the time for humans too, or for humans. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We do it all the time for adults too. Uh, we don't have time to go into how you decide to do nose versus belly. Belly's more, uh, more um, permanent than nose is. With the nose, you get sinusitis. Uh, it's hard to breathe in and out of the nose. There's other issues, other factors. <clears throat> but this is more of a long-term option. Um, but the point of this slide is, technically, it's not that hard to do. But I challenge you to find 
an adult, especially an older adult who doesn't have some visceral hatred for the idea of being fed through a tube. That's in contrast to, next slide, this little gal. And I just found this on the internet. But I thought she was adorable. She looks like one of Brian Bailey's daughters. And here's her feeding tube. Classic peg tube right there. Goes in through her abdominal wall into her stomach. And if she didn't pull her shirt up and grin real big for you, you wouldn't even know it's there. Okay, this is the burdensome, advanced, overly aggressive technology that people will talk about with feeding tubes. Next slide. This also comes from Catholic Medical Association. It's a great decision tree in terms of <clears throat> when do you put a feeding tube in. You probably can't see it all, but I'm just going to run through it real quick. You start at the top and you ask questions. This is a feeding tube, by the way, a cartoon representation of a feeding tube. This is the part that goes in the stomach. That's the part where you stick the food. Is the patient able to eat and drink adequately? If the answer is yes, you continue feeding them. Duh. Okay. If the answer is no, you move to the next step. Is there a short-term need? If the answer is yes, you can use an, what Lucas is talking about, an NG tube, an IV. IV TPN is a form of IV nutrition. Uh, we won't worry about HDC right now. But there are short-term options. These are not long-term options for technical reasons. If the need is not short-term, you move down. Is death imminent? If death is imminent, in imminent, then you provide palliative care, which is another way of saying comfort care. You're not obliged to feed someone if death is imminent. Feeding, feed them through a feeding tube, that is. Um, if, if death is imminent, you may actually add to their discomfort with feeding. If death is not imminent, move down. Is there a... When I first started medical school, I thought that word was contraindication, but it's not. It's contraindication to a peg or a... a huh? <laughs> Looks like AI makes A to me, but... Um, is there a contraindication to a peg or a feeding tube? If yes, then you have to consider other options. There are some times when it's contraindicated. If it's not contraindicated, then you recommend a peg tube. You discuss it with the family. If they agree, then you do it. If they don't, then at that point, you have to, as a doctor, you have to consider recusal from the case and transferring the patient to the care of another physician. And... Uh, trying to remember if I've had to do this. I don't think I have. I've threatened to do it, and then the circumstances changed to where <clears throat> the patient started dying and death became more imminent, and so I didn't have to recuse myself. That's the other thing. I, I didn't even think about saying this till right now. If you don't hear anything else I say, listen to this. For men who want to be faithful, God is kind, and he often makes these decisions easy. He often takes the decision out of your hands. More than once I've been shaken in my boots thinking, how will I stand? How will I fight for the right thing? And God takes it off my plate. There are times you have to stand, but trust God. Remember, he will never give you more than you can bear. Okay? Next slide. So special situations... Advanced dementia. Advanced dementia is one of those situations where I actually don't recommend a feeding tube. People can't eat well in the later stages of dementia. In a lot of cases, some of them still eat like a horse up till the very end. But 
in some cases, they can't. <clears throat> and what they've shown is that with advanced dimension, you'll hear this statistic quoted a lot, and this is why I want to bring up this special situation. With advanced dementia, they've shown that you actually don't prolong life with a feeding tube compared to careful hand feeding. Now, caveat, somebody has to sit down and take the time to feed them. If you don't sit down and take the time to feed them, then all bets are off. But compared to careful hand feeding, you don't buy somebody any more time in advanced dementia, and you may actually make their problem worse. Tube feedings can sometimes lead to diarrhea if they have bed sores and then they get diarrhea from the tube feeds. You make their wound worse. Skin breakdown gets worse. They have shown that you, it's very hard to increase a person's overall nutritional status and muscle mass through feeding tubes in the case of advanced dementia. What it highlights, though, is two things. One, don't let people quote statistics about advanced dementia to situations where they don't apply, like strokes or you know, traumatic brain injuries, that kind of thing. It applies to advanced dementia only. Second, it highlights the need for you guys to teach your people in your congregations to go in the nursing homes and feed people. Because the nursing homes aren't going to spend the money to have people do it. And I guarantee you, there's all kinds of people that you could go into nursing homes and help feed, and the staff would welcome your presence there. Because... Contrary to popular belief, we're not, all, uh, we're not all death mongers. There are actually a lot of people in healthcare who want to treat people right. And so um, this would be a great ministry for you to have at your church to start up. Now, Terry Schiavo is a different situation, completely different. She was not demented. She was unresponsive. But she was what is commonly referred to as being in a persistent vegetative state. I don't like the term because it conflates man with vegetable. Okay? She still, in the state that she was in of unconsciousness, bear, bore the image of God. And therefore, I think it's wrong. It communicates the wrong message to people to say it's a persistent vegetative state. A better term would be a permanent state of unconsciousness. In her case, every organ in her body was working. And certain vital brain functions were working because she still had brainstem reflexes. She could still breathe on her own. Her heart was still beating and being regulated appropriately. Everything in her body was working. She was not in a state incompatible with life. All she needed was medical assistance with hydration and nutrition. And removing her feeding tube was not an act of kindness. It wasn't even manslaughter. It was murder. And Terry Schiavo is not a one-off. Okay? So, moving on from the issue of feeding tubes, getting back to advanced directives in general, we talked about living wills. What's this pulsed thing? In Indiana, they call it POST, P-O-S-T, we call it, it stands for Physician Order for Scope of Treatment instead of Physician Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. But it's the same deal. The state vary, the form varies from state to state, and so you have to read it carefully depending upon your state. As is typical of Indiana, our form is actually better than a lot of states, but it does still have problems. And this is a great example of Christians being asleep at the wheel. 
this was basically passed in Indiana before I even realized what was going on, and that's to my shame. Okay, these are the kinds of things we can't let slip in under the radar. The third option is a medical power of attorney, which is when you appoint someone with good Christian discernment to make decisions on your behalf in the event that your health deteriorates. This is by far the much better way to go. Now, what are the problems with Pulse or Post? We'll call it Pulse from here on out. Well, it started in the early 90s in Oregon. And my apologies to those of you from the Pacific Northwest, but if it comes out of Oregon, you've got to be a little suspicious, especially when it comes to death and dying. <clears throat> it started, Oregon is, the, is sort of the, the capital in these United States of the right to die movement, and that's where it started, at the Oregon Health and Science University. It was extensively funded by pro-death organizations. Um, I remember... I can't remember if it was Robert Wood Johnson or what, there were four in particular organizations that funded this initiative and one of them had given in excess of $100,000 to an organization who, whose sole raison d'etre was to oppose religious obstruction to the right to die. Okay, so it doesn't guarantee that Pulse is wrong, but you have to have your antenna up and be suspicious of what's going on with this initiative. It grew in Oregon through the 1990s. In 2004, they said, we're taking it on the road, and they began a campaign to enact this kind of legislation all across the United States, and now the vast majority of states have a pulse system. It's replacing the living will. It grieves me because my best friend's an attorney, and he would be great at walking people through this decision-making process and coming up with an advanced directive that it was actually biblical, but he's going to become obsolete in, in this realm because the, the Pulse form, it's a simple checklist and that's what everybody's going to. They tout it as the new standard of care and it's fraught with problems. It does have a couple advantages in that it's a standardized form. In a pinch, you can quickly look at it and tell what the patient has expressed. Um, the communication is simple, but the problem is, just like with a living will, you don't know if the box that was checked accurately reflects what the patient wants because you don't know how it was explained to them. And one of the things that's, I think, particularly insidious about Pulse forms is anybody can sit down and fill it out with a patient. It can be a nurse's aide, uh, not even a nurse, if they've gone through the certification process. It doesn't have to be a physician. It doesn't have to be an attorney. It could be a respiratory therapist who's gone through the, the process of learning how to fill out a pulse form with someone. And so it takes, it divorces it from the doctor-patient relationship. A lot of bad doctor-patient relationships out there, but it doesn't mean we give up on them. It doesn't mean we throw the baby out with the bath water. Now, a lot of people will cite decreased cost of care as an advantage to pulse forms, but I put a question mark because you all ought to smell a rat whenever you hear that it decreases the cost of care. What they're saying is, you know, people like to cite a lot of statistics such as, um, oh, I don't have them in front of me now, I think 30% of all Medicare dollars are spent in the last 30 days of life. People say that and they feel like they've said something. Well, when else would you spend the money? You know, unless you were trying to preserve life, unless you were dealing with major illnesses, are you gonna spend the money when you're not sick? 
Um, and so it's kind of a meaningless statistic, but everybody gets up in arms about it and thinks, oh, we've got to put a stop to this. Anytime they tell you they're going to save money, you need to read, we're going to withhold care that in many cases would have been appropriate because these lives are judged by us not to be worth preserving. That's what it means. That's, that's what the code means. Moving on to the more explicit dangers, um, pulse forms are, no, are not explicitly written in the context of death or dying. Living wills were clearly understood and contained verbiage that made it explicit that these applied to situations of death and dying. Pulse forms, uh, how old are you? 20. You could sign one today and it would be legally binding anywhere in your state. And you're nowhere near death and dying that we know of. Okay? They've been removed from the context of dying or terminal illness. We've been removed from the context of specific medical conditions. I hope I've impressed upon you the importance of considering particular facts as you apply these principles and make these decisions. You have to know the facts. These things are filled out long before any facts could possibly be known. Okay? We said they were removed from the context of patient-physician relationship. They contain loaded language. Language like um, life-prolonging treatment instead of life-preserving treatment, okay? Aggressive care instead of things like ordinary care. They use words that are loaded to push people toward checking boxes that will commit themselves to a less lesser degree of care. Instead of having the presumption be toward preserving life, the presumption is toward doing nothing. Next slide. So this is Indiana's post form. You can't see it most likely, but I just want to show you that box A is where you tell whether or not you want CPR or not. Box B gives you three options. One is comfort measures only. The next box is limited interventions, and the third box is full interventions. Notice how they give primacy to position here. The first thing that catches your eye is maximize comfort. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I have a chair that maximizes my comfort. Right out of the gate, I kind of like that box better than all these others. I'm not sure I'm even going to read these two because, you know, they had me from hello here with maximize comfort through symptom management. And so by putting the non-invasive, non-treatment option first, they give it the better position and they push people toward choosing less care. Same thing with antibiotics. They do the same thing here. The first choice is use antibiotics only if it's going to help with comfort versus using antibiotics consistent with treatment goals. And then, of course, they use the word artificial with nutrition. Primacy of position is given to no artificial nutrition. Defined trial period of artificial nutrition or long-term artificial nutrition. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of what forms are taken over in every state and the problems with them. And you're going to probably have opportunities to talk to patients about these kinds of forms 
in the decisions they've expressed or are thinking of expressing on the form. Next slide. All right, so let's bring it home. We've talked about the terms and the distinctions between the terms. We've talked about biblical principles. We've talked about decision making. And does anybody know when I started? Jake, when did I start? 3.15? Okay. We're going to wrap it up here soon. I'm going to talk a little bit about what this means for you as a pastor. I've tried to do that all along, but I've got some specific points for you as pastors, and if we run out of time, we'll do more of it during the Q&A panel time tomorrow, okay? First of all, I've already told you, you've got to train medical professionals. You can't trust CMDA to do it, Christian Medical Dental Association. They're not going to do it. I hope that in the future you can trust me better to do it. But if you've got medical students in your congregation, if you've got nurses in your congregation, preferably pre-med students, I do actually have a claim to fame, a bunch of notches in my belt for guys I've dissuaded from going to medical school. Some are in this room. So I have been active in teaching that way. Um, But if you, if you can catch them early in the pre-med stages or in the pre-nursing, pre-dental stages, that's much better because by the time you get really in debt and you've suffered for a long time through the rigors of training, you get hardened and it's much harder to uh, interact with a tender conscience on these issues. You have to teach the people in your congregation who are dealing with death and dying. Push them to sign a power of attorney and to appoint someone reliable rather than filling out a pulse form. David talked about this, but you have to give them a doctrine of suffering. The concept of redemption, sanctification, holiness through suffering is completely lost on people. Nobody sees suffering as a good anymore. And I'm very limited in what I can do if you guys haven't done the spade work of teaching people that sanctification and redemption come through suffering. You have to teach the responsibility to care for the elderly. Most people don't have a clue. I promise you most people have no clue that they're obliged to take care of their parents. That part of their conscience was either never developed or suppressed long ago. And so I take care of patients in the nursing home all the time who have absolutely no reason why they have to be in the nursing home. None. They walk, they feed themselves, they take themselves to the bathroom. The only reason they're there is because their kids both have jobs and um, their kids are in, you know, little league or whatever, and they just don't have time, and they don't make time. Now, there are situations where people have to go in the nursing homes, but I'm telling you, there's a lot of situations where they're not necessary. And we need to reclaim a culture of life, and we can start by reclaiming honor for the elderly, honor for our parents, respecting life in its latter stages as opposed to dismissing it as having no quality and relegating it to the impersonal and cold environment of a nursing home. Uh, You you need to teach people about the beauty of dying at home. You need to be careful in the language you use. Be smarter than the world when it comes to the words you pick. Next slide. You have to help people make ethical decisions. 
And key to doing this is cutting through the emotions. It's not that emotions matter, don't matter. It's that they can't trump right and wrong. And we live in an emotive society where the only thing that matters is how I feel. And people have lost the concept of right and wrong. You have to help them. There, I mentioned earlier all the straw men. And I, 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 I so wish I had a dollar for every time I've heard these very statements. I just don't want to see her suffer anymore. Or that's not the man I married. Or she wouldn't have wanted to live like this. Well, no duh. <laughs> you know, major news flash. I wouldn't want to live that way either. Joe doesn't want to live that way either. You know, Alex doesn't want to see somebody suffer. It's immaterial to the question of what's right and what's wrong. Nobody would choose cancer for themselves. Nobody would choose a stroke for themselves. Nobody would choose falling off a motorcycle and having a brain bleed for themselves. The fact that nobody wants it doesn't tell you what you should do once it's happened. And it's very, very, very hard to get loved ones to see this. I do it. I try it. And it's very hard to get them to think this way. Start before it becomes a crisis. You also have to cut through outright lies. Dying is a natural part of life we all go through. I mostly hear this from my professors in my practice because like Sobern said you heard earlier, you have to be pretty sophisticated to believe something so silly, so contrary to scripture. Dying is not a natural process. Yes, we all go through it, but it is not the, what was intended. You know, try, try telling that to my sister who found my dad dead in the back of our, his truck. Do you think that's a comfort to her? Dying is a natural process we all go through. Try telling that to uh, somebody who's just lost a child. Oh, it's a natural, it's a natural process. We all go through it. Baloney. It's a lie. At least the suffering will be over soon. That's also often a lie. And it takes cojones to tell people that. Okay, but you have to do it. <clears throat> you don't get many opportunities to tell him that, but you have to tell him, no, actually, uh, his suffering very well may get a lot worse here very soon. The suffering he's experienced so far cannot begin to compare to the suffering that he will face if he doesn't repent. I had a pretty funny story along these lines, actually, recently. A couple of you have heard this before, but... I had this real crusty guy who started coming to see me last fall, and he has horrible emphysema. The kind of, I don't know if any of you have seen somebody with bad emphysema, but they're real scrawny, they're always jittery and anxious, and <laughs> just talk like this all the time. And he comes in my office, and that's my damn nerve, Doc. I'm just a damn nervous. I just need some more nerve pills, all oh, the pain in my legs. Doc, you've got to give me some relief. And this is just what every, every meeting is like. And he just constantly blasphemes, takes the Lord's name in vain. And uh, over a year ago, somebody told him he ought to be on hospice. And he said, I just chased that hospice nurse out of my house. I didn't want to hear her talking about that stuff, telling me I got six months to live. Who needs to hear that? I, I, need, I don't need that kind of discouragement. 
and you look at him and you're not even sure if he's going to make it to your front door, <laughs> let alone six months from now. Um, and you think, boy, I wish he'd have gone on hospice. But here he sits, and he keeps coming back, and he keeps telling you how anxious he is, and he keeps telling you, on the one hand, I don't want to hear about death, and on the other hand, and then he says to me, but I, I ain't afraid to die, I ain't afraid to die, I know I'll be in a better place, I know my suffering will be over. And so I said, uh, well, what will happen to you when you die? And uh, he said, well, I, I guess I'll just, that'll just be it. And, you know, I'll just cease to exist. I won't be suffering anymore. And so that was my cue to say, actually, no, you need to be warned. And what I told him was, I said, you know, I wish I had a nickel for every time you took the Lord's name in vain in my office. I'd retire. And, uh, and he said, oh, Doc, I know it. It's, it's, it's a terrible habit. It's just, a, it's, I got to quit doing that. And I said, you, you really do because the Bible says he will not hold guiltless those who take his name in vain. And he said, I, I know, I know. Well, you know what I need, doctor? I just need more faith. And he said, I think I might be a Christian. Because I, I started praying, and, and the whole time he's saying, you know, by God and all these other kinds of things he shouldn't be saying. And he said, but you know, I started praying, and, and, and he's, he's answering my prayers. Everything I'm praying for, he's doing. But, but I still don't have faith. And so then you can imagine that that led to a discussion of faith. And he kept wanting to put his hope in the fact that everything he was praying for, he was getting. And I kept saying, trying to bring it back around to, no, you don't put your hope in that. You are a sinner. Your hope can only be in Christ taking the punishment for your sins. And you have to repent and turn away from those sins. And he keeps saying, oh, yeah, I know, I know, but I, I just... And so... Finally, his, his niece is over in the corner crying and saying, thank you, thank you for telling him this. Um, and uh, finally he says, well, you know, Doc, I'll I tell you what, you just seem like a hell of a good guy. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, well, anything good you see in me is the Lord working in me because I'm, I'll, I'm wicked. I need his mercy just like you do. And we exchanged a few more comments, and he's getting up to hobble out of the office. He says, I'm, I, I'll tell you again, Doc, you just seem like a hell of a good guy. And something from my southern Indiana, Evansville Pass kicked in and just took over, and I said, well, you know, I serve a hell of a good God. <laughs> and then as soon as I said it, I thought, oh, no, did I just really juxtapose those two <laughs> things in the same sentence? And I, And I say that, tell you that story, not to say that you should go around saying things like that, but to say that you have to go for it, and you're going to screw up. But I thought it was quite possible he would react very badly to me rebuking his blasphemy, and if he didn't, I was sure the niece was going to, picking on a guy who can barely breathe, and yet God used it. And so live by faith. That's the moral of the story. Stand against the culture of death. Restore a sense of right and wrong. Next slide. Um, is this my last slide? I think it is, isn't it? Let me look at my notes here. No, no, I got one more after this. I do want to talk to you guys about hospice in palliative care. I think we've gone long enough today, though. Maybe we'll get into it some tomorrow. 
let go to the next slide. I just want to summarize what we've talked about so far. You guys need to understand the basic distinctions between basic care and treatment. You need to understand the distinction between resuscitation versus long-term life support. Committing yourself to being resuscitated is not the same as committing yourself to being on a machine for 30 years. Ordinary versus extraordinary treatment. Difficult to discern, but a useful concept. Comfort measures palliative care versus manslaughter versus murder. You need to remember the main driving principles from God's word, that we are created in his image and therefore all life has value. And then you have to apply each situation based on the facts of that situation. That's what a shepherd does. And so my final exhortation is, is be a shepherd. Feed Christ's sheep. And I can think of few better ways to do it than to prepare people for death. Thank you. This has been a production of Clearnote Press. Please feel free to share this recording with others, but do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more resources like this, go to clearnotefellowship.org.